This is the Coach Brew Show. This is also the world's shortest podcast intro. And we are live on the Coach Brew Podcast and the Deep Leadership Podcast. Uh, both of us, well, John Rennie and John Brubaker, recording from the friendly confines of Coach Brew's studio. And um, what what exactly would you call this? What I, a I don't know. Dual, a it's, duo, a dual podcast. It's a joint podcast. Well, that stuff's legal now, so yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, that's, we that's are, very, It's like Joe Rogan esque. <laughs> very much a so. Joint. Podcast. We are in Maine. We're recording in Maine at uh, at Coach Brew's studio here in Maine. And um, by the way. Uh, Pot is legal here in Maine because everywhere, every small town we've been driving through has a dispensary. So is it, uh, I guess, recreational and uh, medicinal, right? It's the state flower, I believe. <laughs> okay. Keep talking. I'm going to turn off the AC. Ah, all right. You look all like right. you're getting a little chilly. I'm okay. <laughs> so good to see everybody here on the podcast. We're, we're going to do a joint podcast today. We're going to talk a little bit about leadership from two different perspectives. Coach Brew was a college lacrosse coach. Uh, I did time in the military on submarines, as you well know, those who know me. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about leadership from two different perspectives. You did time? You make it sound like you're in prison. Well, have you ever been locked on a submarine for 100 days? It's good pretty point. much like that. Yeah, I, uh, I did time <laughs> at a college. You did time. Yeah. I'm a recovering lacrosse coach. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, the uh, the reason we chose this topic um, is because you see so many parallels mm. in, like, sports and the military. And some of them might be valid, but I think a lot are uh, bunk. Yeah. One thing I like, you know, we, we have, I've had you on my podcast before, and one of the things we talked about. I've I, had you on my podcast before. Yeah, been, Are we yeah. keeping score? I think so. No, we're mm. not keeping score. But one of the things that you, you said, and it's always stood, stood with me, is that a coach, you know, you recruit the players, you train up the, the team, you prepare for the game, but then you step off the field and your players have to do the work. And I think that is one of the, the, um, the areas where I think – in corporate America, at least, people struggle. Leaders struggle with that. They can't step off the field. They want to be right in the middle of it. Yeah, you just described every micromanaging middle America, middle manager in America. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that's one of the parallels that I've always felt like that's a, a great leader will do that, a step off the field and let their their players play and well, let them execute the, the plays. And that's where I do think there is a parallel with the military because you – okay, so like – Let's take, for example, Navy SEAL Team 6 did the Bin Laden raid. Mm. They set up a, um, a model, like a full-size model of that compound, uh, wherever they set it up. I'm assuming somewhere stateside, right? Yeah. And they trained, like taking the helicopters, um, breaching you know, the perimeter of it, and how they're going to enter the building. They trained all that, and their leadership coached them up through that in the training. And it's kind of like an athletic team at practice. You have a scouting report on your opponent, and you're being trained and, and coached up. You have game film to watch. They're probably able to, to watch film on mm. you know their approach to the compound you know, in their training and everything. But then you know, uh, when it was go time, and they're actually over there headed into like uh, Islamabad, there's 
nothing that, you know, their commanding officer, the commander, you know, the head of the military, whoever's in charge of that mission, there's nothing that person could do because they weren't in the helicopter with them. There's no, you can't call timeout. There's no coaching you can do in the moment. I think that's where it's very similar to college athletics is like practice is where you can train, teach, and lead and but then it's I think it's up to your players to execute and I always thought that like coaches shouldn't be able to call timeout this is a very contrarian point of view yeah like everybody who's a coach listening to me is either tuning me out or saying (laughs) you're an idiot no way Um, but I always thought it would be more indicative of who did a better job preparing their squad if on game day the coach couldn't call timeout, uh, couldn't talk to them at halftime and make adjustments. Like They just had to figure it out Hmm. for themselves and lead themselves and coach themselves in the moment on the, quote, battlefield as we like to make all those, you know, war metaphors with sports and what have you. Yeah. Um, And most coaches would be afraid of that. Because they want to have that sense of control, you know. And you see uh, so often games that go into overtime, as soon as, like, one team gets possession of the ball in overtime, coach calls timeout when they get on offense. And they're going to draw up some brilliant and genius play. I never did that. Just let them play. Now yeah. you're, you're let, first of all, you're letting the defense get set up. Yeah, yeah. You're giving them time to react to you and get their personnel they want on the field. Let players play. And I think that speaks to what you do when you're on a mission in the military. Like, there's no, like, you're on your own. Yeah, there's no timeout, for yeah. sure. Fail or succeed. But the other thing, too, I think, when you call a timeout like this, and I don't know if you said it in one of your books, or I, I had maybe one of my guests, I've had a few Was this coaches. something memorable and brilliant? It was. Well, yeah. then it definitely came from me <laughs> in one of my books. But I think what it does is it sends a signal, I don't trust you, to your players. I don't trust you, right, and the yep. training that we did. I want to stop the game, and yep. I want to tell you how to do things, mm-hmm. right? And so... And actually, in two, the players get nervous too. That like, okay, so, so he's called timeout. Yeah. This is this is now uh, escalating right to where now they're getting nervous and they might make a mistake because they're nervous. So to, to your point, yeah, like when the other team would call timeout during like critical situation, end of game situation, yeah. end of half, like stressful, you know, one goal game or tie game or whatever. You know what I like to do during that timeout? Crack a joke. Yeah. Yeah, break the tension. Point out, like, an attractive girl in the crowd on on the other side of the field. Like, something to just, like, get the guys to laugh and relax and realize, hey, it's just a game. Yeah. You know? Because what happens when you're tight with anything? What happens when you're tight with anything, John? Oh, you you get nervous, yeah. you're, and you're going to mess up. And you're when you think the stakes are high, and you know, I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to be a headline of, of the loss of this game. You know, uh, and, instead of your best players wanting the ball in the last seconds, right? Nobody wants the ball because they yep. don't want to be the person that loses the game instead of wanting to win the game. So and there's that old Navy saying, is a Navy SEAL expression: "Slow is smooth, and smooth is fast." Yeah. And that sounds very counterintuitive, but it's true. Yeah. Slow is smooth because you're not pressing, you're, you're, you're not nervous. Right, right. You're not making mistakes. It's smooth and methodical. And, and ultimately, smooth is fast because 
you know, what happens when you rush things unnecessarily? Yeah, yeah. You make, you make mistakes. You're in a hurry. Like, you know, you're off by just, you know, a fraction of a second or a fraction of an inch with whatever you're doing. In sports, yeah, exactly. In, in sports or in anything, you know. Well, the parallels in, 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 in the business world, I've seen it too, where um, when stakes are higher, you get the manager, you know, calling meetings and wanting to be involved and I need a briefing every day. And, and, uh, and what it does is it makes the team nervous. And so they're not the same thing. They're not on the top of their game. They're, they're worried about their jobs. They're worried about failing versus, so they go on the defense yeah. instead of the offense. And if I'm one of them, you know what I'm thinking? Hmm. Why'd you hire me? Yeah. Yeah. You don't trust a. You don't trust me. B. Like, you need to micromanage me. You, yeah, yeah. Did you hire the wrong people? Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, micromanagement. If I'm that manager's boss, I'm thinking, did you hire the wrong people? Yeah. Why do you need to supervise them so closely? Yeah. Yeah, micromanagement says I don't trust you. Yeah, I mean, I need updates. I need details. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna pause the game, and I'm gonna tell you what to do because I don't trust you. To, to make the right decision, it's not good for the for the person that the follower to feel like their boss doesn't trust them. And don't you think, like even even when you do, like the, the general you, yeah, even when you do trust them, a lot of times it's the human the human condition to mm. intervene, to just make sure, to double check, to stop them, remind them, like. And I think that might be one of, and I'd like to get your take on what is one of, if not the hardest aspects of leadership. Hmm. I think letting go. Yeah. In those situations, like one of the hardest challenges for a leader is to let go. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you've got a pretty big ego and you love to honk your own horn. <laughs> so let me just try and beat you to it before you say what, and I'm being sarcastic here, folks. John's like the most humble, unassuming person you'll ever meet, which is part of what makes him one of the many <laughs> things that makes him a great leader. But I will say this, at the time of this recording, John is in my office in, in Maine, not in his office in North Carolina. Mm. He has been up here for the last month in a cabin. It's kind of like a Unabomber cabin, I think. But <laughs> It is. <laughs> um, in a cabin, on a lake, vacationing up here in Maine. And a lot of times when the leader is absent, there's absent leadership. When the leader is absent, that's a bad thing. At your company right now, the leader has not been there. I don't want to say you were absent because I think your influence is felt when you're not there. But you haven't physically been on the premises yeah. for a month. Yeah. And the message that sends is, I trust you. Yeah. Uh, I am capable of letting go because I know I hired qualified, competent people. And it's the mark of a great leader in a great company that everything functions smoothly when they're not there. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to give you your kudos on all of that. Whether it's true or not, folks, I have no idea. I haven't seen video footage of his manufacturing plant. I don't know how much time he spends on Zoom or like watching security cameras. But no, just the fact that you uh, are comfortable enough to say, you know what, I'm going to take this time. And so let me ask you what um, leading up to this, you know, did you have to do anything special in preparation to? 
no, take I, this time away or no, what? I, it, no, it's, it's, you know, it, it, I feel like I can take the time because I have a good team and I do trust them and they are taking care of it. A lot of times I feel like sometimes like I'm in the way, mm-hmm. like, like my team is highly capable and, um, and they know what to do in, in every circumstance. Yeah. And I'm there for, you know, when there's a conflict and they don't understand, you know, there's two options that are pretty close and which way should we go? I kind of get that question a lot, but in most cases they, they know the mission of the company, what we're trying to accomplish. And, um, and I trust them to be able to carry it out. And I think one of the things with entrepreneurs is, and I see this a lot when I talk to a lot of guests on my podcast where they get stuck with growth because the owner can't let go. Yeah. Right. And they can't, they have to control everything. Whatever made them great. So maybe it's a pizza joint and the guy just makes a great pizza. Right. He doesn't trust his people to make a great pizza because he's the only one he thinks they can make that pizza or whatever it is. And, um, you know, they have this one thing that made them great and, and, and caused their growth. And so it's a, it's fear-based, right? So they don't want to let go of that one thing that they're good at because that's their comfort zone. And I think that's a, that's a challenge with entrepreneurs is being able to, to let go and loosen your grip a little bit on those things. And the fascinating thing, to me, for me with this is uh, to put a sports parallel in mm. there. When you see a coach get a technical foul and get ejected early in a game or, you know, they get sanctioned for violations and they have to sit out like the first, yeah. you know, they have to sit out, you know, eight games or whatever. And the team plays better without them. Yeah, yeah. Why is that? Yeah. You know, did is it just that the assistant had – better answers all this time and he was holding out yeah no they play freer because they're not because that head coach is usually a little too controlling won't let go yeah you know and they're able to exercise their judgment and play without feeling second guess maybe there's more trust on the field or on the court or wherever like but it's always interesting to me to see, like, when a coach is ejected, do they play better or worse without him? Mm. When he has to sit out a number of games, are they playing better? Or what's their record when he had to sit out versus, you know, let's see, he had to sit out three games and then he came back. You know, what's their record the next three games? Interesting. You know, yeah. Um, just that whole process of, like, how free are your people? And you mm. could take that out of sports and put it in corporate America, the military, anywhere, your classroom. How free are your people to exercise their good judgment and utilize their talents and unique abilities hmm. without you looking over their shoulder or having them under a microscope? One thing that I was thinking about when you're talking about coaching and then you're talking about the SEAL teams, one of the things that uh, that stood out to me in my time in the military was, um, and I talked about it, I had a, uh, someone from NASA on my podcast uh, recently, and we were, he, he was actually responsible for doing the running the launches for the space shuttle. And we were talking about um, what that's like, and he said, well, it's we... It's not tr- rocket science, Well, Sean. it truly is rocket science. <laughs> <laughs> but he talked about how, like, they trained so much that it was just uh, muscle memory. And I yep. think that all of my time in the military, we were doing some pretty serious stuff, mm-hmm. but we never even thought of it as serious because it was... We trained, and we trained, and we trained, and it was all muscle memory so when it came to real execution. So pretty serious stuff. Yeah. Okay. For people who are maybe discovering your podcast or mine for the very first time, don't know you, Hmm. and don't know the details of your background in the Navy, define pretty serious stuff for those folks (laughs) and exactly uh, what sort of ship you served on and what you did. 
Yeah, so anybody who's followed the uh, Titanic submarine uh, situation, I mean, I was on submarines. I was on uh, U.S. Navy submarines, nuclear submarines at the end of the Cold War. I was on the USS Tennessee. She had a nuclear reactor, uh, 24 nuclear weapons, and a bunch of 18-year-old kids running it. So uh, we would deploy for 100 days at a time. Um, and I was one of the officers on board. It was 15 officers and uh, you know, a crew of 140. Those kids are the same age as a lot of college athletes. There's yeah, another exactly. parallel There's for There's a you. lot of parallels there. Yeah, and we were young, too. We were, you know, I mean, our commanding officer was the old man, but I think he was in his early 40s. The old he, man of the sea? Yeah, he was the old man in his early 40s. And, um, yeah, we were in our 20s, and, and we were doing I – mean, just you give you an example of one – I was the missile officer in our last three patrols, and one of the things I had to do was to climb inside uh, a nuclear missile and make sure everything was properly set before we went out to sea. So they trusted some 20-year-old kid to climb inside a nuclear weapon. And, you know, I mean, this, so that's I the asked, serious stuff that we were doing. Hang on. Okay. <laughs> this is – I remember asking you about that and just, like, I told you uh, I toured a submarine in Connecticut. Yeah. And I, the second I climbed down the ladder and got in, I got super claustrophobic. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I had to get out. And I just, I'm claustrophobic. And I remember asking you, like, I don't know how you did that. Never mind, like, when it went underwater and you're at the bottom of the ocean. And you're like, it didn't bother me at all. As a matter of fact, when I had to go into those missile tubes, yeah, you know, I would go in there. They'd close the door behind me, and I remember you telling me you found it what? Relaxing. Yeah, peaceful, yeah. I think, were your exact words. Yeah. It was relaxing yeah. and peaceful to be in a nuclear missile, like, torpedo tube yeah. closed in there at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, yeah. Not quite Have you lost your freaking mind? <laughs> wow! It's funny because um, I'm I, I I don't like heights, right? So when I'm when I'm okay. I don't care to be close to to an edge of a cliff or a a lighthouse or a thing like I don't like heights, right? But when it comes to anything like tight spaces, things like that, it doesn't bother me at all. And I think if you're gonna serve on a submarine, it's kind of the opposite of heights. Yeah, right, exactly. You're not going to fall very far because yeah. you're you're tight. But I think if you if you volunteer to serve on a submarine, you don't have a problem with with claustrophobia. I mean, I don't even I don't even think about. It. I never even never thought it was a thing until I got out of the navy. Yeah. And I talked to a lot of people like, oh, I could never do that. Like, what do you mean you could never do it? I could never go under the ocean. Like I I feel, you know, tight. Well, mm -hmm. I, I used to, you know, when I was younger, I used to do a lot of cavern diving when I lived in Florida. So we would go into these these open water cave systems. In, and in another down. in another life, John was Florida man. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, you got a little Florida man in you, John. I'm New England man, but yeah. I was living in Florida. But um, just being down there, and you know, you turn off your light, and it would just be pitch dark, and you're underwater. Like people would just would freak out about that. But to me, that was it's relaxing. It, it, well, I don't know. It's a weird thing, but yes, yeah. it is yeah. very. Yeah. For yeah. someone like me, yeah, different strokes for different folks. But, but I couldn't jump out of an airplane. Oh, no, perfectly good airplane? I Unless would someone's shooting at it, no. I mean, I, I think I would pass away before my chute opened. I wow. just would be that scared. Wow. But, yeah. But we got off track. Yeah. But, um, oh, one thing I was going to say. You know, we're you, you found it relaxing. Yeah. And that's kind of where we were going with this. Oh. But high pressure situation mm. where the stakes are high you were in a nuclear sub during the cold war yeah and you found that environment relaxing 
So some of that, I imagine, it, like is nature versus nurture, or nature and nurture. So how much of that is your nature, and how much of that is, to your point, the muscle memory, and like this is just SOP, standard operating procedure. This is just what we do. It's normal. So I think probably part of it is like I, I dream to do this job, right? Like it was like I, you know, like some kids dream of being an astronaut, a fireman, police officer. I dreamt of being. Uh, an officer on a nuclear submarine. So I was doing my dream job. So that's part of it. So I, so my so my desire was there. Yep. But then there was so much training and so many reps that whenever I had, you know, I was the officer deck uh, going in and out of port or we were, you know, doing a doing emergency ascent or mm-hmm. whatever the more difficult thing we were doing, I never got nervous. I never even thought about it because I had done it so often. The Navy did a really good job of giving us opportunities to to learn and fail many times before they gave us the watch on our own. So I think that's part of of the training and development they did, which was to give us opportunities to learn, to fail, to get better, and then then they give us the opportunity to lead. So I that's think the ultimate a, laboratory right there. Is it is being yeah. somewhere where you do have the opportunity to fail without C- controlled failure. Life, you know, life altering consequences. Yeah, yeah, controlled failure is one of the most powerful teaching tools, and the reason being is that we don't like to fail. There's a lot of you have an emotional reaction to failure. You don't want to be embarrassed. You don't want to look like a fool, right? So so when you fail. You you lit, you you want to figure out why you failed, and you mm-hmm. want to turn that around. And so sometimes leaders prevent failure, so they don't want anyone on their team to fail. They want to control everything. It's like it's like mm-hmm. kids not letting your kids fail. Oh, right? we we wrap them in bubble wrap. We wrap them in bubble wrap, and so they've never had those experiences. So they don't have the resilience. Yep. They don't have any. They've not built up the ability to deal with failure. So I think one of the things the Navy did right was given us these opportunities to fail in a controlled manner to where we can learn and got, get better. And I think it's something we don't do enough of in companies. And I feel like athletics and the military are the last bastions of controlled failure. I think you're right. Where, you know, because it's not happening in the school system. Not at all. No yeah. child left behind. Really? Yeah. Some, yeah. Some Everyone's above average. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone should go to college. You know, the trades are bad. Like... They're setting up very unrealistic expectations, and then when kids, young adults, get out in the real world, and your boss doesn't have tenure, like your professor did, Mm. and you're not just being passed along, they're really in for a culture shock. Yeah. But in the military and in athletics, it's that meritocracy where you tend to have leaders who are wise enough to create an environment of controlled failure as a teaching tool and you know to use kind of successive approximations to step 1 step 2 step 3 a process to get to an outcome mm. um you know that's why i'm such a big proponent of you know participation in both of those arenas for people young adults yeah, and, and so for people listening in might say, well, how do you do control failure in a corporate environment? And I, I worked in corporate for 22 years, and one of the things I did was 
you know, when I'd see an employee that sort of had some potential, so I could see them taking responsibility, you know, you, you know what it's like. When you're in a room, you can see a natural leader. Everyone's listening to that person. They're sort of directing things. And they, even, even when they don't have rank or they don't have the position to do it. So I would find these individuals, and I would give them these stretch assignments. I'd put them on a, I'd have them lead a small team to get something done that was, a lot of times it was outside their comfort zone. It was a stretch assignment. It was something... And it was, it was twofold. One is I wanted to see what they would do, but I also wanted them to get the experience of having some failure and to learn from that failure. It, and it, it gave me great data points on that individual so I could tell whether or not I've got someone that had, had potential to take it to the next level. There's a key word that you use that I mm. want to go back to. Sure. Stretch. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's a delicate balance in stretch assignments. Mm. Like how far... Yeah. Do you stretch that person? Because, you know, if you push someone, whoa, like way too far out, they could be set up to fail unknowingly. You might unknowingly be setting them up to fail. Uh, like, so what's your measuring stick for stretch for people? So it's interesting. And I know it's case by case, no, but it's like, case walk by me case, through but that. But I want to say this is one of the things I, I, I had in my opportunity in my life, I was 32 years old and I had never run a manufacturing plant in my life. And I had a leader that said, go run this manufacturing plant. So he gave me an assignment that I should, I was not qualified to do. It was the ultimate stretch assignment. Go mm-hmm. take on your own manufacturing plant with 140 people in a town where I knew nobody. Right. And, um, but so, so in my mind, I'm thinking, give us, Give it, give a big stretch, right? But, yeah. but, but over the years, I've given stretch assignments to people, and they have fallen flat on their face. And I've had one in particular, a marketing guy that would, I really thought he could take it to the next level. Gave him a big project. He fell are flat. We, on his are face. we talking about our old podcast producer no. Parker? <laughs> Not at all. Okay. <laughs> Not at all. But um, he fell on his face, and was interesting because he always wanted. He said, "I want to be a manager. I want to get in management." I want. So I gave him this opportunity, mm-hmm. and he fell flat on his face. And one of the things it told me right there is there's a data point. Like, yeah. okay, he wasn't ready. And could he be ready in the future? Maybe. But he, was, he clearly wasn't ready. But I gave him the opportunity. And he learned, too, that he wasn't ready, too. So both yes. of us. So he stopped asking me, I want to be in management. I want to be in management. He's like, oh, shoot, this is hard work. I'm like, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, so so I think it's important to give people those opportunities. I I don't know if too much is, is – I don't know – I don't. I haven't found one. I've never given one that's maybe too much, uh, but but because of my personal experience getting that plant at 32 years old, I feel like anyone can do anything. But I, gotcha. I, I know it's not true. I do, I do yeah. know it's not true. But I mean, I had a really good team at that plant. That basically, you know, I had I had employees at a plant who'd been at the plant longer than I've been alive. So it was pretty easy when I took over to just don't. And it's the same at the same time. Don't screw it up. <laughs> a tough dynamic for you, though, because of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. an interesting t- thing, too, which you don't see so much in college coaching, but you do see it in leadership in the business world is oftentimes you might get a leadership assignment where you're not the oldest and you're not the most experienced person, but yeah. yet you're the, you're in charge. It, it's rare that it happens in the military, too, because it's uh, it's a progression system. Yeah, I think so the, you, only, the yeah. only time you see that in college coaching is the head coach gets fired in the middle of the year. Oh, right. right. And let's say it's a football staff. You know, you get yeah. staff like two, almost two dozen people, like mm. 12, 15 coaches between coordinators and position coaches, yeah. special teams. And they promote one assistant to interim head coach. 
it might not be the 64-year-old coordinator who's been a head coach before yeah. has taken a step back to move up a level into, you know, you know, power five football or whatever. It might be like when Dabo Swinney was uh, the secondary, I believe he was a secondary coach at Clemson. Hmm. And when um, Tommy Bowden got fired, I think it was Tommy Bowden got fired from Clemson, uh, Dabo got promoted over some other people who were coordinators and, you know, had more experience. And that was kind of sink or swim for him. How was he? That was a stretch assignment. Yeah. But those opportunities I do think are few and far between. Yeah. Because there tends to be that kind of, what do you want to call it? Like graduated career progression. Yeah. Career progression. Typically. Yeah. I think the one, one, one area in, in the military where you see it is, like when you're a young officer and you first arrive on board is that you you're 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 responsible for for an enlisted you know team of enlisted sailors who may have more seniority and yeah. and you know your rank is higher theoretically but your experience level and your age your time on earth is a lot lower you know oh you're a college boy who went to that's ocs it. that's exactly it yeah this is cute that'll yeah. be fun oh, yeah. yeah yeah and and shout out to chief nunez my first uh, uh petty officer i i worked for i mean he worked for me but i kind of feel like i worked for him yeah. and uh, he was patient enough to let me you know learn the role of leadership i think what i see uh in the military i see a lot of senior enlisted and i think that's a hard job when you when you've got a lot more experience and you have a lot more knowledge than this young junior officer coming out of the academy or rotc yep. or, or you know uh, ocs and they're in charge right but it takes a special person to be able to handle that role and to be able to be that you know that right hand man you a know, team player. That, yeah. That's a team player, a real true team player. And I remember I had a, a, a sailor working for me, uh, Petty Officer Gemini was his name. And when I was in the, the missile department, I was the, the missile officer. And I remember I would give him a task, and he would say, yes, sir, I'll take care of that. And I'd give him another one. He's like, yes, sir, I'll take care of that. And one time I stopped him, and I said, you know, every time I ask you to do something, you just say, yes, sir, and you, you take care of it. You know. And he goes, well, he said, I could argue with you. He said, but it's it's easier just to say yes, sir, and then do it my way. <laughs> and he has a point. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. I thought that's amazing. You that's know? I some mean, uh, life experience there. Yeah, right? he yeah. would just say, yes, sir, I'll take care of it. And he would do it, you know, he whatever needed to get done, he'd do it. But he'd probably do it his own way. And uh, things got done, and there was no arguments that's to funny. be had. <laughs> yeah. so, but I think uh, being that right-hand man, I've had to do it one time where someone got promoted over me in a corporate setting and he wasn't very experienced in operations. I had zero operation experience. He was a sales guy Mm -hmm. and he got made the general manager and I was his ops manager, his right-hand man. And so everything we did was ops. Like there was nothing. It was very little sales and marketing that we did. And I remember being in that role thinking this guy's underqualified and I probably should be in the role, but he's in the role. But But I resolved myself to be that right-hand man. And I purposely, every time we had a meeting, I would sit on his right-hand side. I, I purposely physically did it so it would remind me to say, I'm not in charge. I'm his right-hand man. I'm here to make him successful. And that's what I did. And I think that's a hard thing for some people yeah. to do is take that right-hand man position because a lot, everybody wants to be in charge, right? Or they, or they, wanna, they want the limelight. So, yeah. did, did you just assume your gender? <laughs> did I really? As right-hand man? Oh yeah, is that just a common comment? Uh, Are we common... even allowed to say that anymore? 
I don't know. That's a good question. Um, and that's uh, yeah. It's probably offensive to lefties. And well, by that I mean left-handed people. Well, you, to be a right-hand person, you can mm. call it that, right? Yeah. I don't know. That's, that's a good the, point. If you're right-handed, that's like the patriarchy of handedness. Yeah. Not to get too political or politically correct, but yeah. it's probably the patriarchy of handedness. Being right-handed? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right-hand privilege. Right. I'm just thinking the same <laughs> thought. <laughs> it's a right-handed right world that left, left-handed people live in. That's exactly right. But, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. funny. Yeah. But, hey, you know, they got the left-handed Whopper. Oh, yeah. Remember we talked about that them? back on our old podcast. Yeah. yeah. If you're looking to go down a rabbit hole, <laughs> it's a podcast, uh, the artist formerly known as the X-Factor Podcast, where we talk about all kinds of crazy stuff. It's just me and John riffing about wild things in the world and corporate America. And there was an episode about the left-handed Whopper, I think. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was. That was a good good time. So it's those st- they're still out there and i think they're still rated e for explicit i don't know why though uh yeah I think people could figure that out after <laughs> listening to an episode or two but yeah there's just so many parallels um i think letting go is one of the hardest leadership strategies yeah or uh, things in your leadership toolbox what would you say is one of the toughest things about being a leader so the one that i hear a lot about leadership is uh, you hear this a lot say i I, i'd like to be i don't want to be a leader i don't want to deal with the people problems so people so people problems i hear that all the time businesses would be great if it weren't for the people yeah exactly yeah it's like (laughs) if i get rid of my customers i I, you know i have no more complaints right um but i think you know when i hear that comment I, i i I, you know, I say probably that person isn't ready for leadership because really what it boils down to is is people. I mean, to be able to yep. – I mean, it's about motivating a group of people to get something done. That is leadership. And so if you don't like people, if you don't want to deal with the messiness that is people, then it's probably not a good place for you to be is in, in a leadership role because this is something that is truly parallel between the military, business, and I'm sure the coaching – is that people are messy. You're dealing mm-hmm. with all these different personalities and all these different hangups and fears and, um, uh, you know, belief systems and, and confidence levels. And, and people are messy. And I said, but they are also, I would say this, on the other side of the coin, people are amazing. And if you can figure out the amazing part and you can sort of overcome the messiness, then I think you're, you're, you're going somewhere. And leadership is about customizing your approach to every person working for you. And I imagine in coaching, it's a lot of the same. It is. You want to put individuals in a position to succeed. Mm. And that position looks different for each person on your roster. Uh, I think that what you touched on being a people business yeah, is whether it's the military, a uh, team, sports team, or company like People are your greatest asset. Yeah. And they're also your biggest liability in many cases. Yeah, they can be. And it gets down to like talent acquisition and the recruiting process. And it's kind of funny you mentioned the the people side of things. (laughs) I had tweeted earlier today, um, and you want to follow me at at Coach Brew. It's not even Twitter anymore. It's X. It's X, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, it's X. I X'd. Or tweeted this <laughs> the other day, or um, this morning, rather. It, it is a miracle that college, and I believe this, it's a miracle that college coaches can win today. Because if you look at what college campuses have become, it's essentially a four-year reality TV show set 
on an all-expenses-paid co-ed resort with no supervision, no accountability, and limitless booze. Mm. And those kids, it's supposed to be a learning environment for student-athletes, mm. and they're supposed to be high performers on, on and off the field. But look at the uh, yeah you the just, amenities and and the living arrangements and the conditions. Like an all inclusive resort. Is it possible? <laughs> yeah, it's like Sandals Resort. Exactly. You know, different campuses. I never thought of it that way. Um, is it possible that we can make our team members or our employees? accommodations too comfortable Hmm. because you see um well there are certain colleges i won't name names but one comes to mind where uh, it's like the ritz carlton of colleges it's probably not too far from you in north carolina Hmm. uh, where the newspaper is left at your doorstep every morning oh boy you can get wake-up calls ordered to your Hmm. phone in your room um, there is a five-star restaurant on the campus where the students can eat once a week. Uh, an ice cream cart gets mm. pushed around the quad every afternoon. They have free ice cream for the students. Mm. Wow. Swimming pools. I mean, it's a country club. It's not a college campus. Mm. It's essentially um, they're living in the lap of luxury. Is it possible for us to be making the environment a little too comfortable for the people we're leading? It's a good question. I mean, I I would say, you know, I I always say that probably one of the greatest gifts I was given is not growing up rich, like growing up sort of poor, because I think, I think adversity and, you know, going from nothing to having something, I think gives you a, you know, you you really do appreciate it when you have everything all the time, then you get spoiled, right? And then, you know, you've got, you get that uh, entitlement syndrome where you expect everyone to treat you a certain way Mm -hmm. and what have you. I think that, um, I think adversity is good for us. It builds our character. Um, It introduces you to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You learn what, in a way, nothing else will. Yeah. You learn what you're capable of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's important. However, when it comes to leadership, I do try to make a good environment for my employees, right? So I do bring snacks in. I do have drinks in the fridge. I, Is there an ice sculpture, a chocolate fountain? No. Are you serving surf and turf at lunch? No, I do make brisket. Do you push an ice cream cart around the the warehouse, I, the I manufacturing ice cream warehouse before, every afternoon? Not every afternoon. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think there is value to roughing it and value to being hungry. Yeah. I, I mean that literally. Uh, the example I would give uh, two former student athletes of mine, I won't name names, um, both very funny in college, mm. very like stand up comedian funny. Mm. And they both, I mentioned this on my podcast before, so if you've heard this before, you know where I'm going. <laughs> they both decided to pursue stand up comedy careers oh, wow. after college. One of them uh, quit his air quotes job and moved to LA to just do sets every night Mm. and, you know, pursue a full-time career in comedy. The other one kept his full-time day job and just whenever he could, he would do sets like at the local open mic in the evenings in his city. And I was talking to him about it and he's frustrated that he wasn't more successful and he's been grinding and doing this for many years 
And uh, the other person who went all in um, had what seemed like a meteoric rise by comparison. They were friends. They were teammates. Mm -hmm. They know each other well. And I said, why haven't you really committed to doing this? Mm -hmm. And he said, it's hard to be funny when you're hungry. Yeah. I like to eat. Yeah. And I said, it's hard to be successful when you're not. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. You know? Yeah. And so I think, you know, when that person's willing to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And not. When when they're willing to experience those hunger pains and be uncomfortable, that's when they'll really be all in. And yeah, the results will start to come. I do think it, personally, I think it uh, it is possible for us to make things too comfortable for the people we lead. Yeah. You know, I go back to like um, you know, some of my more successful teams are the ones that had the shittiest locker room. Yeah. And yeah. when it got really nice and like when the locker room was comfortable and they had a brand new couch and, you know, beautiful wooden lockers that you could just like sit in that were like big like phone booths, you know, to yeah. get, get changed in. Like it just changed the dynamics of the mindset of the team really they uh they lost that edge they lost that chip on their shoulder yeah and they weren't as hungry and they weren't as successful i mean this is the rocky analogy right rocky won he was hungry you know he wasn't eating the steaks he was uh using them as a, as a punching, <laughs> punching bag bags, yeah. yeah yeah but you know i think you're right i think there's something to be said and, and i guess i would say this is that i've been in different environments in the military where it was almost a sense of pride that we didn't have yeah. stuff, you know. Well, isn't that why everybody makes fun of the Air Force? Yeah, because it's exactly right. Yeah, they like have they it too uh, easy. they yeah. have like an Air yeah. Force base. They build the golf course first, then they build the, the exactly dining right. facilities, and with ever whatever money's left over, they build the runway and the training facilities, right? Exactly. And the barracks, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so go ahead. Like, no, I just think there's a sense of pride when you when you suffer through something that's yeah. difficult, and and uh, you almost. You know, you, you get nos- I think now oh, I'm an older I'm older now, so I'm more like nostalgic nostalgic to those time periods where you were just suffering and grinding and trying to yeah. get something through, and you didn't have any, you know, you you were just hungry. I I, I write in one of my books, uh, my second book about my time at Nuke Power School. I I, I, I shouldn't have been there, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there was the guys that were there were so much smarter than me, so much more capable of me, and it just was a it was like boot camp for geeks, basically, and, yeah. I, and I didn't quite qualify to get there. I just barely got in, but I would say, it, getting through that six months was the toughest things I've ever I've ever done in my life. It's also like the high water mark in my life where I think to myself, yeah. if I can do that, I can do just about anything, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think we need those experiences in our lives where we suffer and we strive towards a, a goal, to where we say, hey. If I've done that, then, you know, pretty much the sky's the limit of what I can do. And nothing, I would say, nothing in my corporate life ever was as hard as that. As that. Uh-huh. Nothing in my in entrepreneurial yeah. life has ever been as hard as that. So to me, when, when you've had those really difficult times uh, and you've struggled through something, then you're like, it, it, builds, it builds a level of confidence. You're like, oh, it's not that bad. And you're more calm when things go, go wrong in corporate or go wrong as an entrepreneur. I think it does wonders for your problem-solving ability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's that, 
is one area that really is fascinating to me. And I do believe that in our adversity lies our advantage in whatever it is, whatever industry we're in. Yeah. Athletics, military, business. Mm. You have to have that struggle to become a creative problem solver, to become a little more hungry and motivated. And yeah. 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 Any comfort? What do you say? Comfort is a cage. It is. Yeah. 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 It it is. And I think, you know, for for those who are listening in who might be entrepreneurs, and you're thinking to yourself, "Well, I don't have the 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 the, the funds of the big companies. I don't have the the cash." Good. Yeah. yeah. It's like great. Now you you can outmaneuver them. You can, mm-hmm. you know, you can take them out. You can do things that they are unable to do because you're you're quicker, you're nimbler, you're hungrier, and uh, and you're willing to take risks that they would never even dream of doing. So you're at a competitive advantage when you're smaller than when you're bigger. Because they're typically bigger companies are resting on their laurels, they're successful, they're they're not worried about they're protecting their market share as yeah, and they're like they're playing, playing defense, defense, not offense. And yeah. and you get an opportunity to play offense. And um, yeah, I mean I saw so many small companies use, for example, COVID as an opportunity to to move move ahead in there and you know just just by yeah. the creative things that they did and then i saw we saw other companies just kind of go out of business they just faltered when the when the tough times came but it was just fun to see certain companies you know doing doing a shift making a change and uh becoming bigger because of because of their you know being hungry and being creative like okay well that that income stream went away what else am i gonna do yep that was fun to watch i thought yeah, it was fascinating. It really was. I um, and I know I asked you this question. What you know, looking back um, at the time, I had asked everyone I knew. Like, what do you think is going to be the industry that just completely dies and never comes back? Yeah. And I thought it was going to be movie theaters. I would have bet the mortgage it was going to be movie theaters. Yeah, yeah. Because you saw Netflix, like things just released right yeah. to streaming. Right. Never went to a theater. Like major movies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, from major production companies and movie theaters have kind of bounced back a little bit. They're probably not where they were pre COVID, but I really, I got that one wrong. Yeah. What'd you think was just going to never come back? Well, what happened to it? So I, one of the things I was thinking about was the commercial real estate, and I think that's yep. still struggling right now. I think that might that, be the uh, next bubble, huh? Yeah, I think that the that was a big one that I thought mm-hmm. because everybody's working from home, you had all these you know empty buildings essentially uh, with all this infrastructure where you used to bring people to work all the time. Yeah, uh, and even today, I think that companies are struggling to get make that decision do we go back to work or do we do we still work from home and we, uh, do you see what they're doing with shopping malls that are like ghost towns now oh no, no. they're turning them into pickleball courts <laughs> really all, all over the country yeah wow from ohio to arizona yeah one of my uh friends from high school is really into pickleball and we were talking about this the other day on his podcast yeah and they're like that's one creative use of commercial real estate Mm. these old because you know shopping malls are pretty much a thing of the past yeah with yeah. e-commerce and yeah it's interesting huh yeah we have a where my factory is in wilson north carolina we have a sort of an abandoned mall that's i drive by every morning and i think to myself it's just sad to see that because it's a time that doesn't exist anymore like that yeah that time doesn't you know we 
you know, the 80s and the 90s when the mall culture was there, probably less of the 90s. Mall culture. Yeah. Wow. Right? That's almost an oxymoron, mall culture. Well, but it was. Culture. It was like when they yeah. they started building these malls, I think it was the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then everybody hung out at the mall. All the young people hung out in the mall. Oh, yeah, in the food know? court. You know, in Spencer the Gifts. The arcade. Yeah. Yeah. The arcade in Spencer Gifts. That's pretty much where we you went. You probably went to that one naughty section of Spencer's absolutely. Gifts. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it was, they're marketing to, to young young men. Oh, absolutely. There's no <laughs> so, question. Man, this is, uh, it's interesting. It's like, how far away from the pandemic do you think we are currently? Like, I don't know. How that, long ago was it? Like, when, when like, oh, that, that COVID was what years? At yeah. time of this recording, it's August of 2023. Yeah. So last year, we were we were pretty much out of it. Okay. You know what I saw last night? No. I went to Staples to get copies made of a workbook that I, for this yeah. workshop I'm doing in Texas next week. And I'm in the copy center, the print center. And they have those enormous floor-standing plastic yeah. plexiglass barriers between the photo, the self-service photocopiers. So they're still up there. They're still there. Wow. I looked at. I had to get some help from uh, the manager of the copy center. I'm like, this is still a thing. Why are these still here? And he's like, Yeah, I know. I have no idea. Mm. I'm like, wow. Do you know, I still. They're have- almost as tall as the receipts they give you. <laughs> is it bad as CVS? Almost. You can make a <laughs> scarf out of them. What were you gonna say? No, I was gonna say I I, um, I still have um, my mask. Uh, my I have like a you still wear it a, a cloth mask that I have tied Do you still wear it? to the front. No, I haven't yeah. put it on in years, but or at least a year. Yeah, but I have it attached to my my backpack because I was doing a lot of teaching, going to universities, mm-hmm. and you know, depending on the campus, they require you to wear it as soon yeah. as you get out of your vehicle. You know, you had to wear it on campus. So I were didn't care were they triggered that yours was red and it said "Make America America Great Again"? <laughs> I might make America Make Americans Breathe Again. What would you say? I forget. <laughs> you know, it was just a gray one. I didn't have the I didn't have the red one. Okay. So. Yeah, just checking. <laughs> but it's just funny to think. I'm that, trying to get you canceled on your own podcast. Oh, no, it's yeah. not going to happen. No. Well. <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, it's it's uh, amazing to think. Like we were, we've been traveling around Maine, and a lot of times we go to like we were at uh, Acadia National Park, and they still had the, you know, you see everyone, you know, going to different stores and whatever. You see the stickers on the ground still, yep. you know, with the arrows pointing, you, you know, or the you know six six feet of distance, and so. We're still um, artifacts of, of yes. that time that are that are. It's a good there. word. Yeah. yeah. So you still see it out there, and um, yeah. So it's uh, we're not that far removed from it. So not far enough. Yeah, yeah. What uh, is the best way for people who are listening to this on my podcast to follow you, John? Yeah, everything about me is at johnsrenny.com. And uh, there you have links to my my podcast, Deep Leadership. And that was uh, MakeAmericansLeadAgain.com. What was it? <laughs> no, it's just JohnSRenny.com. Okay. Yeah. And uh, if someone wants to start, like they haven't, they just figured out you're a best-smelling author. <laughs> what book should they start with? Yeah, I would say the, the book is, uh, the book would be I Have the Watch being my first book. And uh, John actually wrote 
the uh, intro to it. The, the foreword. Yeah. yeah. So, And a lot of people get us confused because they see that John wrote the foreword and then John wrote the book, and so they get confused. And we're both young, handsome, Good-looking. intelligent, yes. vibrant, um, gorgeous physiques. What yeah. else? That's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to get us confused. <laughs> Absolutely. My brother from another mother. <laughs> so, Coach Brew, if people want to find out more about you from my podcast, where can they go? The uh, best entry point, I think, is to go to brewbrewbrew.com. Brew, brew, brew. That's B-R-U, B-R-U, B-R-U.com. Sign up there to join my uh, email list where I send out a different leadership tip each week. Uh, you do that, and uh, you get a bonus. Uh, this um, VIP paid newsletter, it's a $100 value. You get an issue of that immediately delivered to your inbox. And uh, if you want to learn more about me, uh, whether it's booking me to speak somewhere or looking at uh, which of my books you'd like to purchase, just go to coachbrew.com. That's coachbru.com. And for giggles and grins, I mean, you could spell that wrong and you'd still get there. You can go to coachbrew.com. Mm. And I learned that from you. If you spell my name wrong, John S. Rennie, with a, spell John with a H or John with a J-O-N like it's really spelled, you still get to my website. Yeah. Brilliant. I learned that from you. Hashtag wizardry. <laughs> and the other thing, uh, Coach Brew, if you... You've got how many books you've written now? I, I, I want to say 14, but it could be 16. 17, 17, if you include my children's book. Yeah. 18, if you include the uh, Spanish adaptation of my children's book. Oh, is that yeah. out now? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Rudy, oh, Rudy El Canguro Que Sigue Adelante. <laughs> uh, well, That's uh, Rudy Kangaroo Moves Forward. I love it. I didn't, I didn't. I see that now. If you were to say what book should I start with, if I want to learn more about Coach Brew and his philosophies about leadership, and I think a lot, you write a lot about sort of um, guerrilla tactics with respect to marketing and, and entrepreneurship. Options growth. for thinking differently yeah, thinking is differently. sort of my calling card. I would say you should start with. Um, my book, Stadium Status. Yeah, fantastic book. Yeah. Don't buy it on Amazon. <laughs> they made $13.7 billion on Prime Day this year. Mm. He doesn't need any more of your money. <laughs> buy it at coachbrew.com. You can go to stadiumstatusbook.com. Yeah. Jeff Bezos doesn't need your help. I have one kid in college, an expensive private liberal <laughs> arts college, and I got another one headed off to an even more expensive one a year from now. I'm going to have two in college, probably for the foreseeable future. Um, either buy a book or I'm going to have to resort to like setting up an OnlyFans where I sell pictures of my feet on the <laughs> Internet. Don't do that. I would say this, uh, yeah, uh, Stadium status, I'll give you, I'll give you a pitch for that. Um, uh, one idea from stadium status got me a million dollars of revenue in my company. One idea that I implemented from that book. And so, it wasn't selling pictures of your feet on the no, internet No, it had nothing either. to do with, with OnlyFans. But, um, so these uh, stadium status and beyond stadium status, I highly recommend. But I would also say one of my favorite books is Seeds of Success, and that is The Sleeper. And I would say... Get you know that book. You know what that is? What's that? It's my worst-selling 
book. It should be your best-selling book. It I won absolute three awards, it's so and good. it is my worst-selling book. It is so good. It See, was adapted to a Hollywood screenplay, <laughs> and it is my worst-selling book. It's the most counterintuitive, ironic thing yeah. in my entire professional life is the the way that the uh, was the the lifespan or the career thus far of yeah. that book. Yeah, it's mind-boggling to me. Well, hey, listeners to the Deep Leadership Podcast, I want to say read Seeds of Success, and I'll put a link in the show notes, my show notes for that. I'll put a link to my own book in my show notes too, John. (laughs) I love that book. It's one of my favorites. It it blew me away. I didn't expect it um, because I'd read your other books, and I didn't. That one's so much different. So what you're saying is the bar was set really low for you, and it exceeded it. No, it was. Your other books are okay, and then this one was really good, John. No. You know, I think I think I was thinking it would be more like along the lines of stadium status and beyond stadium status. But this one's more about life. It's about leadership. It's about people. And uh, it's a great book. Fantastic book. And it deserves all the awards and accolades. And it should be selling more. So and leadership's people business. Don't you forget it. There will be links to John's website, books, pictures of his feet (laughs) in the uh, show notes on my podcast. This has been a dual podcast uh, by John and John. So now uh, you can all say you have several Johns in your life. (laughs) If you don't subscribe to John Rennie's Deep Leadership Podcast yet, you're listening on my platform, go subscribe. And uh, I will shamelessly say, if you're listening to this podcast on John Rennie's Deep Leadership Podcast, and you don't subscribe to mine, go to the Coach Brew Podcast, subscribe, subscribe, Rate and review, and uh, yeah, even if it's uh, zero stars, do not recommend. It's okay. Rate it, review it. Rate it, review it, and uh, he has the shortest podcast intro in the business. Fun so, fact. Fun fact. Yeah. Awesome. This has been great. John, take us out of here. All right. Well, a, a word of wisdom. Leadership is a people business. Never forget that. Catch you in the next episode of uh, my podcast and And yours. my podcast. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Coach Brew Show. If you're not currently subscribed to the podcast, sign up now on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. And for more information to turn your potential into performance, head on over to coachbrew.com now.